what's happening? Oh, well, it, we, we, we settled in um, with our kith and our cap and had a cute little winter nap with a kitty. <laughs> oh, how nice. Wow. Good evening, and welcome to the beautiful, historical marionette theater. The holidays are upon us, and this evening we're visiting a holiday, a Christmas classic set in the late 40s. It's a yes. comedy drama, and uh, many folks will have seen it for the first time on late night television, don't you know? Well, okay. please grab your seats. The show is about to begin. Not quite winter, but it is December. I heard Jenga bells. You did. Uh, you know, I I put that no solicitor sign out front, so I hope they're not stopping. <laughs> I hope not. Oh, Toppy, it is December, and it's the first of the month, first Friday of the month, and uh, I don't know about you, I'm not quite ready for the eggnog. I'm not sure. Is that a thing in your house? Well, listen, uh, we did have a family recipe of homemade eggnog. You had to cook it. You had to heat it. And uh, there was no alcohol involved, mm -hmm. but it was delish. And, of course, uh, it's the spice nutmeg that makes all eggnog taste wonderful. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, yeah, we had it. It was a it was a Christmas thing. Very heavy, very rich. You don't want a lot of it, mm -hmm. but, you know, a small, little, teeny, tiny thimbleful. Okay, maybe a little more is always welcome. <laughs> we, we didn't have eggnog a whole lot growing up. I I got to the point where if I had it, it would have to be sort of a, a mixture, like a half and half with milk, because it, it's too just too rich by itself. It's very rich. Oh, yeah. Also... Forget about buying it at the store. Just forget about it. You're never going to have a satisfactory eggnog buying it at the store. It's trash. They're always horrible. Find a recipe you make at home. It's very simple. And make it at home because that crap that passes as eggnog in the stores, none of them, they're all Awful. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, you want to talk about awful eggnog, Toppy. My mother-in-law has, uh, in more recent years, learned that she's lactose intolerant. Oh, no. <laughs> and there is a soy product. I'm leaving off the tea for you yeah, Smellcast that's, fans. That's how I do it. Um, and uh, it's a soy product that pretends to be a form of eggnog, or at least the flavor. I'm I'm no. I'm not bold no. enough to try it. Okay, I don't know if there's an almond milk goddamn version of goddamn uh, eggnog or oat milk version. No, forget about. It. No, sorry, no. 
You okay. Know, you know, Obviously, I have very strong opinions about eggnog. <laughs> well, well, we'll move on in just a sec. But I saw a, a, one of those viral videos online of uh, of a cutie patootie who is making a uh, a holiday nog recipe, and um, it starts off with eggs, of course, and then he decides to add a splash of I think almond milk and he said that that made it vegan somehow. <laughs> no. <laughs> Last I knew vegan meant no dairy, but I digress. No, no, no. Spe- By the way, Myron Gertz is in the chat room. She says as a child, her folks made eggnog with milk and they had it year around. Hmm. Often. So how about that? I just know that I will uh, never live down the day that I spilled uh, you know, full strength eggnog on mom's carpet. Oh, you want to talk about hell to pay. <laughs> so, Toppy, speaking of uh, no. I, I spiced uh, nutmeg, I, I think she has a friend named Meg. Um, we'll have to ask her later. I uh, I do believe that our senior showgirl is in the house. I heard her j- jingling and jangling. I'm here. Yeah, she's here. <clears throat> she's been, uh, you know, I got to tell you, folks, it is not warm here at the Marionette Theater tonight. I have a hood on and I'm freaking freezing. Uh, I don't know. Anyways, uh, 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 Gertie, uh, well, well, she looks like she's freezing, but I think she's okay. Gertie, come on. Uh, come on in. Hi. Hi, I don't got eggnog at the concession stand. Sorry, maybe next time. Well, I'm sure you brought the holiday cheer. <laughs> well, naturally, I'm I'm cheerful all year long. <laughs> Anyways, are you ready to for me to do the stupid introduction? Uh, yes, uh, please get down to the stage I'm... and mind the feather boa, please. We don't need a repeat of last time. Yeah, thank you. All right. Yes. How, how, how! <laughs> Wee! Susan is the sharp-witted only child of single-parent Doris, an important person at a big city department store. The holidays have arrived, and the office beckons. So little Susan is shipped off to the neighbors for babysitting, cause mom's gotta bring home the bacon working at the store. Then... Just as the shopping season gets underway, along comes Chris, a kindly older gentleman who emerges and seems just perfect to become the store Santa. But there's something about him. Chris encourages Susan to dream, but Mother Doris would rather she kept her head out of the clouds. Is this guy for real? Did Doris make a mistake hiring him? Will Susan get what she wants for Christmas? Grab your wallet and some walking shoes. We're going shopping the old-fashioned way. It's time for Miracle on 34th Street with Maureen O'Hara and Natalie Wood. Take it away, fellas. What do you get when you take a dash to the silver screen? A pinch of golden oldies and a smidgen of screaming. It's time for Matinee Minutia with your host, DJ and Toppy.
Well, you know, well, it's uh, a trip down memory lane, and for some of us, this is, uh, you know, the the time that our folks and our grandparents maybe were just wee little ones. So, you know, um, as we discussed tonight's film, it probably has a lot of strong memories for many people who maybe weren't... Uh, uh, you know, on this earth when uh, little Natalie Wood first graced the silver screen. Yeah, absolutely true. This was a movie that came on television for me <clears throat> back when, you know, there was the four, the three networks, blah, 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 you know, in the ancient days. And some local station that you had near neck of the woods would absolutely play Miracle on 34th Street and every crema uh, that show would come up. So I saw it year after year for many years. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think I probably watched it with dear old dad when I was a teen. We had a routine at that time of year because, of course, uh, you know, uh, the uh, the cycle of always on cable TV was just getting around when I was a kid, but uh, we would often stay up late towards the end of the year. Well, because my birthday is uh, a holiday for a lot of folks, but Miracle on 34th Street is definitely one of those iconic films that, uh, you know, it just sets the time of year when you see it on, you know the big day is coming around the corner. So, Toppy, this uh, film uh, was made uh, right after world, the, the World War came to an end. Or, um, what year was that, Toppy? Well, I mean, in 47. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and uh, 45 ended the war. Anyways... Uh, we're going back a long way tonight, folks. But, DJ, what was going on in the world way back then? All righty. This is uh, U.S. history in 1947, the year that Miracle on 34th Street hit the silver screen. By the way, it came out in the summer. It's a Christmas movie, for goodness sake. Anyways, Elizabeth Short, an aspiring actress named The Black Dahlia, was found brutally murdered in a vacation a vacant lot in Los Angeles. In ah, way to bring the program down, DJ. I ah, know. I mean, we we've got to respike the eggnog. Um, but this right. case was never solved. There was actually a movie not long ago. Well, uh, it was uh, made based on this, uh, and it had um, Ben Affleck in it. Percival Prattis became the first African-American news correspondent allowed in the uh, United States House of Representatives and Senate press gallery. In New York City, Edwin Land demonstrated the first instant camera, his, his Polaroid Land camera, to a meeting of the Optical Society of America. And, and then everybody knew how to take homemade porno uh, photos. Anyways, <laughs> never mind. It's fine. No, go ahead. Uh, the USS Newport News. No, it has nothing to do with the cigarettes. Newport News, the first <laughs> completely air-conditioned warship, was Ooh. launched in Newport News, Virginia, in 47. 
Oh, wow. An air-conditioned warship. Mm. Wow, there you go. Uh, the first Tony Awards oh. is in 47. It recognized the achievement in American theater and was awarded to at the Waldorf Astoria in New York for the first time. Oh, my God. I love the Waldorf Astoria. Mm. Please tell me it's still there. Um, Please tell me they didn't knock it down. No, the building is still there, although I don't think it's entirely a hotel. It's one of those oh, okay. buildings that... It's, uh, you know, uh, upscale uh, condos and stuff now. Anyways. All right. Well, it's still there. That's it the important is. Thing. Secretary of State George Marshall outlined the Marshall Plan for American Reconstruction and Relief uh, Aid to Europe after World War II. Mm -hmm. President Truman signed the Presidential Succession Act into law, which places the Speaker of the House and the President pro tempore of the Senate next in line of succession after the vice president. So now we, we have a plan of action if something happens. The, well, it's good they figured that out finally. Right. Okay. Uh -huh. The United States Air Force test pilot Captain Chuck Yeager flies a Bell X-1 rocket plane faster than the speed of sound. In the first, It was the first time that had been accomplished in that level of flight <laughs> or climb. That was fast. Yeah. That was fast. In California, designer and uh, film uh, mogul there, Mr. Howard Hughes, piloted the maiden flight of the Hughes H-4 Hercules, 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 flying boat known as the Spruce Goose. It was the largest fixed-wing aircraft ever built. The flight lasted only eight minutes, <laughs> and the craft was never flown again. <laughs> Howard Hughes, folks. Yay! I mean, I can imagine that there are some uh, wealthy people out there that have expensive bathtub toys. <laughs> oh, he did. He had them. Mm -hmm. Oh, and Toppy, because this is very relevant to this time frame, I'm going to step out from the microphone for a second. Read to us about Red Scarcer. Well, that's when the uh, special time in the U.S. of A. history, when the House of Represent Representatives votes 346 to 17 to approve citations of contempt of Congress against the so-called Hollywood Ten. After the Ten men refused to cooperate with the House Un-American Activities Committee concerning allegations of communist influences, commie, pinko commie influences <laughs> in the movie business. And the 10 men uh, are then promptly blacklisted by the Hollywood movie studios on the following day. And that was a day that lives in infamy in Hollywood and it destroyed many a careers and delayed many a careers. Some came back, some never did. Yeah. And, and the ones who helped those who didn't uh, got their hands dirty as well, according to many. Yeah. What an uh, ugly time. Uh, so, but let's talk about happier things. Oh, my goodness, Toppy. This is just uh, after the war has gotten over and what has happened. Yeah, I think I think maybe the baby boom. Oh, yeah. Can we call it that? Oh. All right. So we're going to look at celebrity births here. We, oh, we, read we, fast. <laughs> yeah. 
We got a lot of them. There was a lot of. Yeah. Okay. Andrea Martin. Paula Dean. You know that cook who got drunk. Uh, Farrah Fawcett. Good God. Was she born back then? Mm -hmm. Holy Jesus. Edward James Almost. Uh, Rob Reiner. Oh, speak of Pinko Kami, right? (laughs) Well, yeah. (laughs) According to Archie. Yeah. Meathead. Tom Clancy, the author. David Letterman. Who knew? James Wood. Ew. (laughs) Uh, Aggie Pop, the musician. Meredith Baxter. No longer Bird. Crazy Wacko. Uh, act- no, I I shouldn't say that. I don't know if she was crazy wacko. Richard Lewis, uh, comic and actor. He, uh, Larry David. Oh, God, he's got that Curb Your Enthusiasm thing. Arlo Guthrie, you know, singing with the guitar and such. Alice's Albert, Restaurant. Yeah. Uh, Albert Brooks, uh, comedian, director, novelist. Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh uh, I'll be back. Daniel Steele, uh, the other Gerald McRaney, the act. Cindy Williams, you know, uh, with the with the with the uh, what the hell? Yeah. Uh, you who vodio dodos? You vodio? Oh yeah. Video, never, never mind. I don't know what I'm talking. About. <laughs> Jane Curtin, Stephen King, Sammy Hager, uh, Michael McKeon. Kevin, Kevin Klein, for God's sake, Hillary Clinton, for God's sake, Richard Dreyfus. All these people were born back then. Also, Dwight Schultz, John Lubberkett, and Ted Danson. Jesus, all born in freaking uh, 47. I bet you don't know who a, who Dwight Schultz was. I don't. I have no idea. He was a Lieutenant Barkley on Star Trek. <laughs> Get out of here. You know, okay, every episode, folks, we have a connection to Star Trek. Absolutely. Okay, so uh, Miracle on 34th Street, it was a movie. Some of us caught it for the first time on TV, but it was originally on the silver screen, folks, back in 47. And you might have heard me say that this actually came out in the summer, even though it was a Christmas movie. Okay, so, um, you know, the numbers on uh, the box office back then, uh, well, we didn't keep as close a uh, count as we do nowadays, but back in 1947 money, uh, the number one of the box office was a film called Forever Amber. Uh, why wasn't it Forever Nancy? I guess she wasn't in it. Anyways, uh, brought $16 million in, and uh, the story was in 17th century England, Amber St. Clair aims to raise herself from country girl to nobility and succeeds, but loses her true love in the process. Hmm, I bet you there's an Amber St. Clair at some bars if you ask to order it. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> Number two, because we like to tell you what's at the top of the box office of the year the film came out. Welcome Stranger, a film with Bing Crosby brought in $15.3 million. It was about a retiring small town doctor who falls in love while on vacation. Aw. Now. Can I, can I just interrupt here uh-huh. and say that people wouldn't understand this today, but Bing. <laughs> Bing Crosby at one time was a t- a top office box. Wait a minute, a top box office <laughs> draw. Mm-hmm. He 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 was at one time the guy that made 
the most people come into a movie theater. Bing Crosby. Yep. And uh, he actually was in one of my dad's favorite, well, a couple of my dad's favorite Christmas movies, including, everyone knows about White Christmas, but have you ever heard of a movie called uh, The Bells of St. Mary's, folks? Well, hell yeah. That's another Bing Crosby movie anyway. So you heard this movie's name before, but did you know it wasn't the top? It was number three, though. Gone with the Wind brought in 11.1 million in 1946 or 47 money. Of course, everyone knows that Clark Gable and Vivian Lee. Now, Miracle on 34th Street, compared to the others, it brought in 7 million in 1947 money. The movie, wow. the movie that did just a little better was the original, of course, because this is 47 we're talking about. With Cary Grant and Loretta Young and David Niven, the Bishop's Wife brought in $9.4 million. Another Christmas-themed movie. Mm-hmm. Re- Bishop's Wife. Yeah. Remade several times. And uh, just below the, the same rung as Miracle on 34th Street, it was a film with Robert Ryan and Robert Mitchum. And it was called Crossfire. It brought in $6.8 million then. All right. All right, let's talk about the director, shall we? Sure. All right, that would be George Seaton. So this is a guy, cheapers creepers. Oh, you can find them screenwriting, playwriting, film directing, and film producer, and uh, theater director all through the ages. He was really pretty freaking amazing he was born in south bend indiana way back in 1911 here's something odd he was baptized as roman catholic but when his family moved to a detroit jewish neighborhood well seton went on to learn hebrew and an orthodox jewish yeshiva he was even bar mitzvahed i don't know what that's all about but i guess he he was really into the Jewish culture or religion or whatever. And he studied it. Anyways, after high school, well, his entire family said, oh, you're going to Yale. And yeah, you're going to do great things at Yale. But no, what did Satan do as, you know, uh, a young man who defied a parental author? <laughs> no, he auditioned for a drama school in Detroit. And his audition got him a job, a position in a stock company, and he got paid 15 whole dollars a week. There there he goes off on his career. Uh, And uh, then Seton uh, continued to work there in the stock company. But he also got some side jobs on radio, including on radio station WXYZ where he was cast and originated the role of the Lone Ranger. Can you believe it? Oh, Oh my God. (laughs) Obviously, other actors, uh, uh, who the hell did, by the time it got on radio later and then on TV, Clinton Moore, Clinton, was that his name? Clinton? Anyways, uh, anyways. No, this guy, Seaton, originated the the role of, of the Lone Ranger. And by the way, Originally, the script said, whistle, 
you know, when you got it, you got your horse, you got to whistle for your horse. Hmm. And, and the thing is, Seton couldn't whistle. Oh. So he originated and devised the cry, oh, seller, because hmm. he couldn't whistle. And that's how he would uh, call his horse uh, to his aid. Of course, Hio Silver became a whole thing in the uh, the Clayton Marr. Who did that? Was that Tommy? Tommy, thank you. Clayton Moore was the guy that uh, took over radio and then into television for the Lone Ranger. Anyways, uh, by the way, it's the same at the same time that he was doing radio and stuck. Well, Seton would write some plays, one of which was read by an executive at MGM. And he read and said, oh, my God, well, this is pretty good. And he offered him a contract in 1933. So for MGM, oh, we're moving to Hollywood, folks. Uh, His first major writing screen credit was for a Marx Brothers comedy, of all things. In 1937, A Day at the Races. And he did some other uncredited scripting movies for the stage door. Oh, and The Wizard of Oz in 39. (laughs) Holy cripes. In the 40s, uh, Seton uh, briefly worked at Columbia Pictures. Eh, Not so much happened there. Then he went on to 20th Century Fox, where he was so successful as a screenwriter. That he moved on up to director. And his directorial debut was Diamond Horseshoe in 1945 with Betty Grable. He wrote it also. It was produced by William Pearlberg, a big name. And Pearlberg and um, Seton would go on to combine uh, to do many of their movies together for years. It was a partnership that was that just went on. They they worked well, they were successful, and their partnership uh, went on for years. And uh, let's see, uh, Seton wrote and directed Junior Miss in 45. And he wrote and directed The Shocking Miss Pilgrim in 47 with Betty Grable. And then here we go. Also in 1947, Miracle on 34th Street. That movie quickly became acknowledged as a classic. He won an Oscar for that screenplay. Yeah, Miracle on 34th Street. He won the Oscar for the screenplay. Hmm. Uh, Later on in 1954, he he won another Oscar for a screenplay for a movie called The Country Girl. So Seaton continued to produce, write, and direct through the rest of the 50s, the 60s, and into the 70s, with the, like hits all over the place. But his biggest, okay, wait to hear this. His biggest career hit was made in 1970 <laughs> with what movie? The All Star Disaster Movie Airport. Oh which he adopted from the popular novel by Arthur Haley. That script earned him an Oscar nomination. So there you go. That's the twilight of his career. And he has his biggest success. So Seton's last film 
as director was Showdown in 1973. He died of cancer in California in 79. He was president of the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts, and Sciences from 55 to 58. And in his decades-long career, he made well over, I couldn't count them all, but well over 25 motion pictures. So there you go. That is the director, George Seaton. The magician of tonight's film. All right, we are at about the halfway mark in the show. So we're going to step on over here to the uh, Happy Holidays Lounge, where Madame Gertie is going to have some uh, some virgin libation. And, uh, well, we'll see if it's worth the price of admission. So... For li- your listening enjoyment, we have a, a, not quite a medley, because that t- usually is three, but uh, a couple of clips here. One is from Turner Classic Movies with uh, a very uh, renowned host, Bob Osborne, and he's joined briefly by Alec Baldwin. They co-hosted uh, some narrated bits for a little while there, and then there's an interview with the director, George Seaton. Here we go. You know, pulling off a movie like this is a tough thing to do. Mm. Tell us about the director, George Seaton. George Seaton was a wonderful writer and uh, director, won an Academy Award for writing uh, this movie. And uh, he also directed The Country Girl, that Grace Kelly won her Oscar for. He, he was uh, teamed up for many, many films with uh, William Pearlberg, who produced this movie. Pearlberg and Seaton were kind of a, a unit that traveled together a great deal, but very prolific and always a very classy, classy man. Seaton shared the Oscar for this film right. with Valentine Davies. Right. And he also won the Oscar for Best Screenplay for Country, Country Girl. Girl. Absolutely. Talk about Edmund Gwynn, what his career was like before and after this. Well, Edmund Gwynn was one of those really hardworking character actors, played villains quite a bit of the time, which was quite interesting. Some of the early films he was a villain in, uh, he was always up to no good or he was working with Lassie and up to a lot of good. So he was one of those consistent character actors that, you know, was never out of work, just went from one film to another. Highly respected, like Edward Arnold and some of those others, Thomas Mitchell, that just went from one movie to another. Very durable. Yeah, very durable. But this is the one that really gave him a name to the general public because they've so loved him as Chris Kringle and he's so kind of adorable in this movie. Yeah. The uh, musical score for this film was by the very prolific Cyril Mockridge, who also did Guys and Dolls. Uh, Another film he scored was one of my personal favorites, Nightmare Alley with Tyrone Power, and also Oxbow Incident and My Darling Clementine. Such different films. Uh, Yeah. Very prolific. Yeah, absolutely. Great crew. Great group of people and and a wonderful movie. Absolutely. And never gets tiresome, I don't think. It started out when Val and I were talking, Val Davies, it was near Christmas time, and we were getting so teed off about the commercialism of Christmas. And Val said, geez, imagine if Santa Claus came back. What, what would happen, you know? So we began working on that, and of course Val's idea was that it really was Santa Claus. And I said, I don't think we can do that. You've got to have a man who thinks he is Santa Claus. And it's all through the film. You know, he's, he's crazy, or isn't he crazy? One law that I firmly believe in, and that is that you've got to let an audience know right at the start. Now, if you recall Miracle, you pick up behind the credits, he's walking with his beard, who is he? He stops in front of a decorating shop, and he knocks on the window, and he says, no, you know, uh, Blitzen goes there, and Blitzen is here, and the guy looks at him as if he's crazy. You know? Now he goes to the parade just to witness the parade, 
And somebody turns on him and says, you're late. What are you late for? And then, of course, the other Santa Claus is a drunk, and he gets in the, the thing, and then he gets the job at Macy's. But at least an audience began to wonder, you know, this guy really thought he was Chris Kringle. Now, when he took the examination from the psychiatrist, you know, dependence, and he listed the, the reindeer, <laughs> you know. And so that I think an audience was well aware that there was this kind of a picture and it was supposed to be a comedy. The thing that I feel about that kind of comedy is the trick is to paint yourself into a corner that you can't get out of, and you have to be just ingenious to get out. It's, you can't have the, the hand of God coming down and solving it for you. I deliberately painted myself into a corner in the courtroom scene where the prosecuting attorney says, all right, we admit that this man is a Santa Claus. It's up now to the defense to prove that he is the one and only Santa Claus. Well, how the hell do you do that? <laughs> but you also have the character of the judge played by Gene Larkart, who is in a political spot. Now, if he, as the ward-healing boss says to him, if you say that Santa Claus is crazy, you've got the candy manufacturers against you, you've got the toy manufacturers, the truck drivers who drive the truck, now you've got the Teamsters against you, you've got the AFL, the CIO against you. you know. So he's looking for any reason that he can say, this man is Santa Claus. So that's when you devise the letter sent to the courthouse, and then the guys want to get rid of 60,000 letters in the dead letter office, so they all bring the mail in. But I think that this always helps in this kind of a comedy to get yourself in a damn near impossible situation and then figure some way to get out of it. Oh, here we are back. So, you know, uh, there is just a, uh, well, a taxi cab, because this is New York City this takes place, and a taxi cab full of talent in this film, and we just learned about the magician in the film, the director. Now we're going to discuss the, the trilogy of talent behind this film, and I'm going to start off by telling you folks about uh, the leading lady in this film, Miss Maureen O'Hara, who played Joris Walker. Not quite Mommy Dearest, but she's certainly paying the bills there at the department store. <laughs> now, uh, Maureen O'Hara was born in a Catholic family and raised in Dublin, Ireland. Go figure. She aspired to become an actress from a very young age, and she trained with the Rathmans Theatre Company from the age of 10 and at the Abbey Theatre at the age of 14. She was given a screen test, which seemed unsatisfactory, but Charles Lawton saw potential in her and arranged for her to co-star with him in Alfred Hitchcock's Jamaica Inn in 1939. <laughs> wow. Amazing. Mm, she moved to Hollywood the same year to appear with him in the production of The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Okay, okay. I'm going to do my Charles Lawton impression in Hunchback of Notre Dame. Okay, here we go. I, I wish I was stone like you. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> oh, and she was given a contract by RKO at that point. From there, she went on to enjoy a long and highly successful career and acquired the nickname the Queen of Technicolor. Now, full disclosure, folks, uh, you know, I grew up in a household with a father who thought our family came over during the potato famine. Well, come to find out, we'd actually been here since before the Civil War. But anyways, 
Maureen O'Hara was one of my dad's favorite actresses. And um, imagine uh, my uh, <clears throat> surprise when I learned that one of her most well-known movies, How Green Was My Valley, was not, despite my childhood imagination, a western. <laughs> you, you, you just you just watched that, didn't you? I did. I needed a little bit of background to Miss O'Hara and her one of her iconic roles. And if you haven't seen How Green Was My Valley, you absolutely need to. It's a classic. Oh, and it, was it wasn't that wonderful? It was the foundation of her career, and it was actually made just six years before um, tonight's film of uh, Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street. So O'Hara appeared in films such as How Green Was My Valley, which was her first collaboration with John Ford. And in 42, she was in The Black Swan with Tyrone Power. In 45, The Spanish Main. In 47, Sinbad the Sailor. And then, of course, tonight's film in 47 with John Payne and Natalie Wood. And in 1950, she was in a film called Comanche Territory. O'Hara made her first film with John Wayne, the actor with whom she is most closely associated with. They were, they were friends later in life. They both went through uh, uh, struggles with cancer. And uh, she was in the Rio Grande with him in 1950. And this was followed by The Quiet Man in 52. That, that, that movie right there really solidified. I mean, uh, people thought of O'Hara and Wayne at that point. Mm. That movie was so well-received and so famous. Yeah. And then um, uh, leading out the 50s, in 57, she did Wings of Eagles. And then in 63, the new decade, she was in McClintock. And then then in 71, there was a little jump there. She was in Big Jake. Now, uh, such was her strong chemistry with John Wayne that many assume they are married or in a relationship. And in the 60s, O'Hara increasingly turned to more motherly roles as she aged, appearing, appearing in films such as The Deadly Companions in 61 and the original, the very first installment in The Parent Trap. Later on, it was remade many times, but she originated the part. And in 66, a film called The Rare Breed. Now, Maureen O'Hara retired from the industry in 71, but... Two decades later, she would pair up with John Candy in a film in 91 called Only the Lonely, where, of course, she played his mom. Yeah, I think she also maybe did a few more movies after she retired. I know she was in a Woody Allen movie. I can't tell you which one, but uh, so I, I think I think. She did a few more movies other than that. By the way, Maureen O'Hara, if you really want to go back, was it in the 30s? Was it in the late 30s? She did all those Tarzan movies Mm -hmm. with that swimmer. What the hell was his name? Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, The Olympic swimmer who did Tarzan. What the hell? Uh, I can't think of his name. Uh, Chat room, come to the rescue. Uh, anyways, so she did a whole, like, I don't know how many Tarzan movies with this guy. 
Um, anyways, so she was, boy, she had a long career. That's all I could say. Well, let's talk about John Payne. Okay. So John- yeah, he's the uh, uh, handsome leading man, and he played Fred Gailey. <laughs> Gailey, I don't know. But anyways, uh, he was born in Virginia, and he attended prep school uh, in Pennsylvania and went on to Roanoke College in Salem, Virginia. He transferred to Columbia University in New York City, and uh, in the fall of uh, 1930, he studied drama there and voice at the Juilliard School. Well, uh, he had to support himself, so he took a variety of odd jobs, including wrestling as Alexei Petrov, the savage of the steps. And he did some boxing, and his name was Tiger Jack Payne. In 1934, a talent scout for the Schubert Theaters spotted Payne probably uh, stripped to the waist, pummeling someone uh, and gave him a job as a stock player, $40 a week. And uh, then uh, Payne uh, toured with several shows. And he also got involved with radio where he would sing on several New York City based radio programs. His big break came when Payne was on Broadway, where he was appearing in the review at home abroad from 35 to 36. He was seen by Fred Colmer of the Sam Goldwyn Company, and he was offered a movie contract. So off to Hollywood, he went with his first role, an only role for Goldwyn, Dodsworth and 36, playing Harry McKee, the son-in-law of Walter Houston's titular character. So he bounced around a lot. Like, you know, studios would would let their stars go for a fee to other studios. That's what happened to him a lot. So he went, he landed a, a roles at many other Hollywood studios before finally arriving at 20th Century Fox, where he appeared in Stardust in 1940. A very uh, successful movie, which landed him at last in a long-term contract, because that's what Hollywood was all about back then, contract, contract players. So he would have a supporting role in Maryland in 1940, and the great profile also in 1940, he had roles in the comedy The Great American Broadcast and was in the musicals Tin Pan Alley, Weekend in Havana, and Sun Valley Serenade. Those were all from 40 to 41. Boy, they, boy, when you were in the movies back then, you hammered them out. Mm. Fox gave him the chance to do drama in Remember the Day in 41 and to the shores of Tripoli. And, after, uh, well, then came World War II. So he had to serve in World War II. And when he returned, he returned to 20th Century Fox and was in the Dolly Sisters. This was 1945, playing Harry Fox. It was one of his most successful films, the Dolly Sisters. 
Then uh, Mar- uh, Payne starred for the first time with Maureen O'Hara in Sentimental Journey in 46. He was also in The Razor's Edge in 46. But let's face it, his most familiar role is for the movie we're talking about tonight, that of the attorney Fred Gailey, Miracle on 34th Street, a huge box office success for him. After that movie, he, because people you know saw the chemistry between him and Marina Hara, he was supposed to make another movie with her called Sitting Pretty in 48. But he weaseled out. Well, no, I don't want to say that. He didn't weasel out. He negotiated. There we go. He negotiated out of his contract with 20th Century Fox because he just wasn't very satisfied with the roles he was getting. So after Fox, Payne attempted to change his image and he began playing tough guy roles in Hollywood. See, Hollywood film noir. Yeah, so he included he was included in movies like Larceny and Sex and Charm, and both of them in '48. And he appeared in The Crooked Way in '49. Yeah, see, film noir. Yeah, during the 1950s, Payne acted in a series of successful westerns and adventure movies. He was a smart businessman, as it turned out. Because Payne, at that time, insisted that the films he appeared in be filmed in color and that the rights to the film revert to him after several years. Well, what did he do with those rights? Well, television came along and he made a great living renting those films to television. So smart, smart guy. He he realized uh, the value of television. Anyways, in the late 50s, Payne transitioned to television acting, and he starred as Vin Bonner, the Ruthless Gun, on NBC from 57 to 59. He was a gunfighter who preferred not to fight if other options were available. But then if he, you know, if it didn't work out, he would like kill you dead with his gun. No, I don't know. Anyway, in his later career years, Payne directed one of his last films. They ran for their lives in 68. And he starred with Alice Faye in a 74 revival of the musical Good News on Broadway. He starred in an episode of Gunsmoke in 70. His final role was in 1975 when he co-starred with Peter Falk and Janet Leigh in the Columbo episode called uh, titled Forgotten Lady. You know, uh, the Columbo, the TV series. Uh, And also later in his life, well, let's just say that like a lot of actors and people over there in California, he became also very wealthy through real estate <laughs> investments in Southern California. That was a real thing uh, that a lot of a lot of actors got into real estate and made a pretty penny uh, with their investments in California. Anyways, mm-hmm. that's uh, that's uh, John Payne. Very appealing role in this movie. DJ, 
So we get to Natalie Wood. Oh, is it time to talk about the little goyle? The little girl <laughs> who is so appealing mm-hmm. and she seems so natural. Yeah, Susan Walker was played by Natalie Wood and Miracle on 32nd Street was actually her fourth film. Now, her her parts in films before this were were none of them as big, but within the first 5 years of her career, she starred in 8 films eight she would star in 14 films over the five years that would follow miracle and holy christ they worked her hard i I don't know know. they worked her hard i'm i'm thinking her folks bought at least a house i don't know oh but her early films would often star walter brennan in the lead role and in 49, Wood was cast in Father Was a Fullback with one of my favorite uh, classic film actors, Fred McMurray and Jim Bacchus. Uh, b- oh, my. Before he did that thing where people got stranded on an island. Yeah. And in 1950, she was cast along with Jane Wyatt, Ronald Reagan's uh, favorite co-star. Well, Okay. All right, go ahead. In our very own, and also in 50, she was starred in a film called Never a Dull Moment with Irene Dunn and, yet again, Fred McMurray. Ah. Now, um, Natalie Wood was the child of Russian immigrants. She was born in San Francisco. A few weeks before her fifth birthday, Wood made her uncredited film debut in a 15-second scene in the film Happy Land. Oh, a whole 15 seconds? Yeah. I'm surprised that didn't happen on a cutting room floor. Despite the brief part, she attracted the notice of the director, Irving Peichel. Uh, say that five times fast. He Irving Peichel. <laughs> he remained in contact with Wood's family for two years. Stalker much? Uh, advising them when another role came up. The director telephoned Wood's mother and asked her to bring her daughter to Los Angeles for a screen test. Wood's mother became so excited that she packed the whole family off to Los Angeles to live. I think she just wanted to get out of whatever uh, town possibly um, and uh wood's father was opposed to the idea Don't. oh you figure but his wife's overpowering ambition to make natalie a star took priority Ew. according to wood wood's younger sister lana Pykel discovered her and wanted to adopt her okay Ew. can you just imagine being a little girl involved in all this bullshit mm-hmm. okay and uh, you know, a parent, uh, a parent who doesn't know any better. Mm. Uh, so uh, Wood played a post World War II German orphan opposite Orson Welles. Uh, speaking of an on-screen presence, as Wood's guardian and Claudette Colbert in "Tomorrow Is Forever" in 1946, Welles would later go on to say that Wood was born a professional. And was so good, she was terrifying. Oh, wow. Yes. Okay. Wood, right. Woods acted in another film directed by Pykel, The Bride Wore Boots, and went on to 20th Century Fox to play Jean Tierney's daughter in The Ghost and Mrs. Muir. Oh, I love that movie. Yes. In the decade leading up to her tragic, untimely passing, sadly, 
As I am sitting here today, folks, I have more years behind me than Miss Natalie Wood got to have. Oh, let's not think about it. Mm-hmm. She uh, would appear in five films in the decade uh, before her passing, including The Candidate in 72 with Robert Redford. In 75, she was in a film called Peeper with Michael Caine. It was a film about a private eye seeking a lost daughter. In 79, she was in a film with Sean Connery. Get this, folks. Uh, This is a list. Sean Connery, Martin Landau, Brian Keith, and Henry Fonda. Yes! Nadir! One of the greatest, (laughs) horriblest, so bad it was good, disaster movies of, of the 70s. Folks, if you haven't seen me here, <laughs> let me just tell you, you're in for a treat. It's horrible, uh, but it's good. Oh, and you know, talk about um uh you know the uh the um ethnic casting there. Natalie Woods, who yeah. is of Russian descent, got to play a Russian. So yeah, that's right. Oh, so let's. I think see. Brian Keith played a Russian. Oh, <laughs> well, you know, I think so. I think point of fact at this point, I think even Harrison Ford has played a Russian. Uh, <laughs> the, the last in uh, let's see now, moving forward in, in 1980, Natalie Wood was in a film with George Seagal, Valerie Harper, John Deloise, and talk about TV trash royalty, Priscilla Barnes, who was one of the the replacement roommates in Three's Company. No, no. <laughs> she did really? a she did a film called The Last Married Couple on Earth in 1980. Now, okay. uh, Natalie Wood's second to last film was a feature called Willie and Paul. It was about two men who fall in love with the same woman. This film starred Michael Antkeen, who. If you're paying attention here on Matinee Minutia this last year during a Pride Month, we featured a film called Making Love, starring Mr. Aunt Keen. And That's uh, right. yep. Wood's final film was a feature in 83. Now get this, folks. I would never have thought of pairing these two, but it sounds amazing. Christopher Walken and Louise Fletcher brainstorm researchers develop a system where they can jump into people's minds but when people involved bring their personal problems into the equation it becomes dangerous perhaps even deadly (laughs) and uh, before her tragic untimely passing wood held 74 acting credits now toppy that's a hell of a lot of credits for someone who died that young yes and uh before we move on to the just the uh tanker oil tanker that we have of trivia on this i just want to say if you have not seen uh, a uh, Natalie Wood film with her as an adult, there's a film from 65 that mm. has quite the cast. It has Christopher Plummer playing uh, a closeted man who uh, likes to date women, Robert Redford, Roddy mm. McDowell, and yeah. the grand dame of theater turned dirty old lady who likes to swear ruth gordon this is a film called inside daisy clover 
And uh, okay, where has this movie been all my life? Why haven't I seen it? Oh, the the uh, synopsis says a tomboy turned movie star deals with the cruelty of Hollywood, and it oh. seems a little close to the truth, perhaps for somebody in the uh, entertainment business. But inside Daisy Clover from '65. I've seen it. You should see it. Any Ruth Gordon fan should see this movie. All right. It go and, and finally about Natalie Wood. It goes without saying that her passing uh, has left us with many questions. She was married to Robert Wagner. She was on a boat with. Also, actor Christopher Walken. Something happened. We don't know. Uh, time after time, authorities have said it was an accident. But, well, of course, there's many, many who believe that it wasn't just an accident. Anyway, she perished uh, apparently after falling out of the boat and hitting her head and drowning. Anyways, it... it, it, it it's still a mystery today. It's still, you know, there's still people who regard Robert Wagner, uh, her husband at the time, with great suspicion. And it's a complete mystery. I, I don't think they, it'll always be a mystery, I think. We'll never know what happened on that boat that fateful, fateful evening. <laughs> Anyways. Let me, after that, let's go on to Edmund Gwen, the last actor we're going to cover in this movie. Well, he played Santi. And DJ, can you hear me? I can hear you. Okay, fine. I just wanted to make sure. Uh, Edmund Gwen, uh, born in 1877, uh, lived until 59. He was an English actor. And throughout his career, one of the most popular in-demand character actors that there ever was with a long and prolific career. He is absolutely best remembered for his role in our movie tonight as Chris Kringle. And he won the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor for that role. He also won the corresponding Golden Globe Award that year. He received a second Golden Globe and another Academy Award nomination for his comedy film, Mr. 880. That was in 1950. Well, he's also remembered for his appearances in four films directed by Alfred Hitchcock. And as a stage actor, which was a huge part of his career, uh, in the uh, West End and on Broadway, he was associated with a wide range of works by modern playwrights, including Bernard Shaw, John Galsworthy, and J.B. Priestley. Gwen remained a British subject all of his life, but lived uh, his, his, a lot of his years right here in the U.S. of A. He bought a house at 1617 North Bedford Drive in Beverly Hills, which he later shared with the former Olympic athlete, <laughs> Rodney Soar. So make, make of that what you will. He was married to a woman at one point, but, uh, well, living with a former Olympic athlete, 
fleet run. I don't know. Uh, he never came out, of course, but uh, we can speculate that probably uh, he was gay. Gwen died in Woodland Hills, California, 20 days before his 82nd birthday. Good Lord. He's got at least, I tried to count them all, but he's got at least 83 film credits. Wow. There you go. He certainly knew how to pay his bills, one would think. Yeah. So, well, there's a lot of uh, trivia associated with this movie, especially with the filming of the Macy's Thanksgiving parade sequences that came in the film and how they did that all. And uh, apparently they had about nine cameras all focused in on this uh, parade that was happening all at once. It was the real parade in 1946. And they had the actors, uh, Maureen O'Hara and um, and Edmund out there um, because they had to appear, you know, it had to look like they appeared in the parade, but also Natalie Wood and John Payne were watching the parade from a window and uh, they were, you know, they were all inside safe and sound. And uh, that's how they got all that stuff. It was actually, you know, a real Macy's parade uh, that they caught all that stuff. Um, yeah. And, and it's kind of weird that they decided to release this in May because, well, the Purdue, here's the reasoning behind releasing a Christmas movie in May. They just said, well, more people go to movies in warmer weather. <laughs> well, okay, maybe that may, maybe that was true back then. I don't know. You know, I don't think that they had that cycle that we have in more recent years where they do a summer movie and then a Christmas movie. Because, yeah. Know. Yeah. By the way, the house. Okay, remember, at the at the end of this movie, there's a house that's featured that uh, the family is suddenly like mysteriously introduced to. And it's just, um, it's a, it's a, it's a home built in 1943 at 24 Derby road in Port Washington, New York. That's the exterior they used. And today they say the home looks pretty much as it did in 1947 there's a little bit of alterations on the roof line and there's some addition of some windows, but pretty much that, that house is still there. And DJ, mm-hmm. how did you, was this something you saw many times? Like I did, I saw this like so many times as a kid on TV and it just became one of those things sort of like, Hmm. The Wizard of Oz. It was something that came on every year that I watched every year for years and years and years. You know, I would say that um, I probably was aware that it got played often during the holidays. And I've probably seen parts of it growing up. But it wasn't until getting ready for our show tonight that I actually, as an adult, watched it from start to finish. So, of course... um, you know, in its time, 
uh, Miracle on 34th Street being the the favorite movie that they would show on uh, network TV and the small town local stations. Um, the the more modern equivalent would be something like a Christmas story. It just get gets played ad nauseum. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'd agree with that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Miracle was played often. Yeah. Just like that. It was like a perennial, like every Christmas it came around. Um, terribly sweet. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Edmund Gwynn as Santa was like super perfect. You can't, you just can't get better than that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, there's, there was a, a short documentary that I watched and I only bring it up because it brings up some good points in the discussion of this film. And uh, it's, I believe it's called What Most People Get Wrong About the Miracle on 34th Street. Basically, uh, it's presumed by a lot of folks. Well, actually, let me ask you this way, Toppy. Uh, after watching Miracle on 34th Street as many times as you maybe have, are you left with the impression that Chris Kringle in this film is actually Santa Claus or (laughs) is he just a kindly older man who is let to believe he is? Well, that's, that's the mystery of the movie Mm -hmm. Um, because the way they set it up, the way they do it, boy, you could go either way and you're never really convinced one way or another. It's left up to your faith and, and your joy in Christmas uh, uh it, it really is funny. They did that so well mm-hmm. where you just didn't know, is this guy some kook who thinks he's Santa or is he Santa? Mm-hmm. And the movie leaves enough open for you to go either way. And I, you know, for me, the last scene there where they go to the house and they go in and then they 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 roll into a close up of the cane that Edmund Gwynn had in every scene, and there's the cane, and you're sort of say, well, well, holy gajibas, mm-hmm. it, it's Santa, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, and that's that's the beauty of the film. You you just you think and you. You want to believe, but mm-hmm. but is he? I don't know, but I think I want to believe he was Santa. You know, and um, I did catch one of the remakes that was made more recently. Of course, the, the 1994 version, which is practically the anniversary year, wasn't quite, but it was almost. It was done by John Hughes. So, uh, you know, if you knew at least that much, you knew there was a good chance it wasn't going to be a terrible remake. Um, But there were some elements from the original that wasn't as emphasized, like the fact that this uh, older gentleman might be deranged. He could be, you know, he could be a, a public menace. And of course, uh, one of the things that they pointed out was there was the the kind, um, you know, heavy set young man who enjoyed playing Santa Claus. Oh, that's right. Mm-hmm. And he, I forgot about this. And they led him to believe that there was something wrong with him psychologically, just because he takes joy. 
out of being kind to people like Santa Claus does. And also, it was a little bit about he was being kind with children. Yeah. Boy, I forgot about that. <laughs> and the fact that the, uh, you know, the alleged store psychologist was not actually somebody who held a medical degree. So yeah. uh, Chris Kringle actually uh, called him out for this because he was making assessments that he wasn't actually certified to be handing out. Yeah. So this this was the 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 total of this was that it's delightful, it's magical. The performances are all stupendous and you freaking sit there and you really feel like Edmund Gwen is Santa and it's just magical. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was so magical that despite John Hughes directing the remake, Macy's department stores passed on the option of being the big name sponsor for the remake. So, yeah. The Macy's store that was in 47 is now magically some other company called Kohl's, and it's not the KOHLs like uh, we know yeah. of. Why, why, why do you think they did that? Like, okay, the original, that first movie featured Macy's and Gimbel's, who were true life stores that competed against each other. Mm-hmm. And in the course of the movie, they, they actually find a way to work with each other, you know, which is sort of a Christmas miracle right there. Right. Two stores, <laughs> you know, recommending customers go to the other store to get what they don't have. You know, mm-hmm. anyways, uh, what what the, what the hell? Why wouldn't Macy's, why wouldn't they want to be part of this movie? I would have to wonder if maybe the original didn't go through the same hoops that uh, something more modern would in terms of getting endorsements and all the promotional stuff. So maybe it would have cost Macy's too much money and they weren't sure that the remake was going to be worth it. Yeah, it could be. And of course, maybe there is a little bit too much um, kind heartedness and uh, miracle in a movie like that. And, uh, you know, they, they wanted to be part of the modern world where we don't believe in things like that. Yeah. It was probably a bunch of lawyers that said, Hey, look, <laughs> just don't, just don't even open. By the way, DJ, you recently saw the remake, mm-hmm. uh, the, the more modern and tell, tell us how that it, um, you know, fit how, how it measured up or if it was better, worse, uh, et cetera. Well, for someone who grew up in the 80s, like myself, um, seeing the original Miracle on 34th Street was more revisiting memories of my parents' childhood. So the the remake in 94 wasn't quite my childhood, but it had some actors that I could recognize, like... Uh, I didn't realize that the lady who played Tom Hanks's girlfriend in Big when he grew up and got a big boy job, Elizabeth yeah. Perkins was the cast in the role that Maureen O'Hara originated. And then Julia Roberts' uh, husband-to-be from Steel Magnolias, Dylan McDermott, 
plays the lawyer. And then okay. you also have up and coming child star Mara Wilson. Who, no, she was such a cutie. Oh my goodness. She, I mean, uh, she's no longer acting, I don't believe, but. Wasn't she also in Mrs. Doubtfire? She was in Matilda with Danny DeVito. Um, but point of fact, Mara Wilson was actually younger than Natalie Wood when uh, she played the, in um, as Susan in the remake. And there was actually even a line in the remake um, that the, the lawyer neighbor said that uh, she talked like a 65-year-old. <laughs> yeah. No, she was cute as the Dickens in that remake. But uh, how did you think it held up? Did it have the same kind of, I don't know. Innocence I, of the original. It had a fair amount of innocence, and uh, they they tried to give it heart. I think some of the characters um, were stronger than Santa Claus, and I mean, uh, this is not to say he's a bad actor, but Richard Attenborough, who was the kindly older gentleman in the Jurassic Park films, is, yeah, is the man who played Santa Claus in this version. Seems like he'd be perfect, was he? He was pretty good, but I feel that the other, the supporting characters were more fleshed out because they, they put less emphasis on the possibility he might not be all there, you know, uh, uh you know, like uh, the psychology factor. Okay, it, so they even uh, threw that in more. You yeah. Think? Yeah, they 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 emphasized more the story of the mother and the daughter, and they actually um, just kind of sweep it under the rug. And and uh, in one brief conversation, uh, Chris Kringle and the neighbor are talking about uh, little Susan's father, and that didn't happen yeah. in the original. But you know, where you take away one thing, you've got to add another. And now suddenly, Susan's father, who. Um, we'll wrap up in a sec here, but what, what was your impression of what happened to the little girl's father when you saw the original? What do you think could have been the possibility? I'm thinking the time frame it was that it took place. If we assume that it was present day in 47, when it was released, I was thinking that her dad possibly could have died in the war because she's okay. like nine years old. I, I honestly never thought about it. I just knew that she was uh, obviously a single mother mm-hmm. and a, a, a widower uh, or a widow or whatever. That. Yeah. Widow, <laughs> Anyways, huh? Yeah. And I, 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 I didn't connect it with the war, but maybe. Mm-hmm. Well, they, they just say that uh, he had a drinking problem in the, in the nineties remake, which, you know, is, is, is an easy aside. Oh, he's just not in the picture. Of course, when you say he's got a drinking problem, it, it comes with the the idea that um, he's abusive. Oh, that but, could be too. Know. Yeah, that that leads to uh, that sort of conclusion. So, but yeah, I I thoroughly enjoyed this film. And if you haven't seen Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street, uh, where have you been living under a rock? Because this is such a part of Americana. And uh, I don't know. That's the way I feel. But I mean, you know, it's practically part of the history of Christmas because this is before everything really got commercialized by, well, some say (laughs) Coca-Cola. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah, absolutely. Coca-Cola had a huge role in shaping the image of Santa Claus Mm -hmm. uh, because of their advertisements. 
I mean, that's where you got the classic Santa Claus in that red suit with the fur and the beard and everything. And anyway, but Cronhaven uh, 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 in the mm-hmm. chat room says or asks any Baltimore peeps who have made it to the Xmas decorated blocks on their 34th street. She says, I only made it a couple of times. Um, I'm gathering that that's like maybe a holiday light display in Baltimore that perhaps she's referring to. We'll have to see if Aunt Tudor can chime in on that uh, in our Facebook group there. I know. uh, Maybe. Yeah. Well, DJ, we both, we both feel it was a, a fine movie. It certainly was. It's a it's a feel good movie. It's as they say, it restores your faith in humanity because it makes you think for a moment. You know those 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 kind people who are thinking of others. They mean well, so don't think twice about what their motivation is. Just let it happen. There you go. And there's always the possibility that uh, this old guy who says his name is Chris Crinkle is really Santa. Mm-hmm. Anyways. Uh so we AJ, we gotta we gotta recommend some movies that sh- uh maybe if if people liked Miracle on 34th Street mm-hmm. uh, they might like something. What do you recommend um off of this movie? Okay, well so from the early days of my Ute, this uh, I think this was actually a TV movie and it certainly had some TV fame in it. Um Miss Jacqueline Smith was in this, and as well as Art Carney, talk about something from the uh, the golden age of television, and June Lockhart. Oh yeah, this sounds like a made-for-TV movie. <laughs> so uh, this is uh, when an oil company begins exploring drilling sites in the Arctic that come dangerously close to operations at the North Pole. Oh no! Santa appeals to an oil employee's family to help save Christmas and his home. I'm oh, no. recommending the night they saved Christmas. Ow. And if uh, all of that isn't enough to make you see it, it has Paul Williams in it, and um, one Paul of the Williams. <laughs> and one of the original actors from The Wizard of Oz who played one of the Munchkins is in it. No, get out. 1984 is the night they saved Christmas. <laughs> all right, you know what I. I was there in 84 watching it on TV for the first time. Uh, so I'm also going to recommend a made-for-TV movie, and it's actually a remake of Miracle on 34th Street. This happened in 1973. It was directed by Fielder Cook. It starred Sebastian Cabot. Oh, Mr. Now, French. There you go, DJ Mr. French on... Family affair. Ooh, family affair. Thank you. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, who who could be a better Santa than Sebastian Cabot? I got to ask you at this time, right? Mm-hmm. Sebastian Cabot, Cabot played Chris Kringle. Jane Alexander was the mama. Uh, you can't get better than that for TV. Uh, some actress named Suzanne <laughs> Davidson played the little girl. And... <laughs> Okay, here's the best part. David Hartman played the lawyer. Now, 
This is too long ago for anybody to remember, but David Hartman was an actor who even had his own TV show for 13 episodes. I, it doesn't matter what. Anyway, but he ended up being one of the original uh, panelists on CBS's Good Morning America, the morning news show. And David Hartman, the actor, just became a guy. A guy reading the news on CBS's mm-hmm. Good Morning America. Anyways, I'm sure he got paid well, and he probably did that for seven years before whoever else took uh, took off after him. But David Hartman, uh, yeah, this uh, CBS Good Morning guy, uh, and then finally, as the lawyer, it was Roddy McDowell. Oh, no, not as the lawyer, but Roddy McDowell started as the psychiatric mm-hmm. doctor who examines Chris Kringle. Oh. Anyways, uh, Roddy McDowell, oh, he had a field day with that role. But anyways, if you have a care, if you if you liked the original version, you might get a kick out of this 1973 made for TV movie remake uh, and God only knows where you can find it. Oh. Uh, I don't know. I, one hopes it would be on YouTube. Wouldn't one? <laughs> well, and I was going to say, Toppy, since it was set in 73, will there be any scenes with an 8-track being used? <laughs> you know, one would hope. One, one would hope. All righty. We are out here at the lobby, and... Uh, you know, uh, we we have to keep the doors uh, locked here because there there's a uh, a criminal element in Spud's flat. No, <laughs> that's a, not that's not what you. There's a draft. Say. Oh, you know, just like that thing. That, oh, a uh, draft. Okay, that like Gertie's old flame. Um, uh, avoided back in the day, but hey, gotcha, gotcha. Um, so we are going to let you know what is coming up next, which will be in two weeks on the third Friday of the month, the 16th, uh, Friday, December 16th at 9 p.m. Eastern. All right, Toppy, as we all know, uh, the marionette has held many splendid things including magic acts, and there is a bag of coins left behind that helps us figure out what's coming up. Hand me the bag up there. Yeah, take this Take, take this bag of coins. Oh, well, these are chocolate. Ow! Put it in the gumball. Ooh, alrighty there. I'm going to open that up for you here. Oh, thank you. Next time on Matinee Minutia, a mid-decade 2014 comedy introducing the redhead lead in Netflix Heartstopper in his first film role, Kit Connor. Also, the future lead in the legacy BBC sci-fi series, Doctor Who. After Santa Claus is arrested and jailed, a recently paroled prisoner and his young son attempts to save Christmas before it's too late. Next time on Matinee Musha, the movie Get Santa with Jodie Whittaker. Woohoo! Hey! Ho-ho! Woo!
Okay. And that'll be on uh, Friday, December 16th. It now. will. And Toppy, if you would uh, take a look over the balcony and let us know who joined us in the chat room tonight. That's right, because if we do this live, folks, I don't know if you folks know when you're listening to the podcast version that we're actually we're actually out here doing it live. And we have a chat room, and we were ha- uh, very happy to have Marin Gertz, and we had uh, why why can't, why can't I see the names? All of a sudden, I can't see the names, DJ. Uh, we had um, help me. There's a little person thingy there. It's a uh, Cronehaven, hubby Billy, uh, the lady. Oh, I got it! I got it now. Yeah, your your husband Billy, uh, superstar uh, Cronehaven, the ever mysterious. We had uh, joining us also Janet, our pal Janet from another planet. We had Lamont Cranston. From New York City, we had Marin Gertz, uh, and we had our old pal, uh, Tommy Hashbrowns. All these people joined us in the chat room, and we really appreciate it because you guys were here with us, and you made it happen, and we enjoyed your interaction. So next time, why don't you try to join us and uh be involved in our live shoe and uh bring a little cheer to the audience yes okay. right and right now i'm looking at a photo your husband billy posted of chatty weissmiller tarzan in 3d it pops right Okay, I don't know, I guess. Yeah, that's Johnny Weissmiller. Anyways, isn't he handsome? Anyways. And, uh, you know, if you uh, look on Facebook, you can find our Facebook group where we sometimes talk about things between shows. But uh, if you're interested in seeing Get Santa, currently it's available on one of our free favorite free services, Tubi, T-U-B-I. Oh, my God, DJ, I love Tubi. Yeah. I love Tubi. Get Santa. All right, sir, if you will, please uh, say goodbye to the folks in the ways of the old days of radio. Uh, say goodnight, um, <laughs> DJ. What I, I, yeah, that's it. Say goodnight. There, there are two whales named George and Gracie. Oh, say goodnight, Gracie. <laughs> say goodnight, Gracie. Thank you for listening to Matinee Minutia. Our show streams live on the first and third Friday of the month. Go to univospods.net. Click the tower for audio. Enter Discord for chat. You can find our show anywhere you listen to podcasts. Visit our webpage at matineeminutia.com. Tweet us on Twitter at matineeminutia. Find our group on Facebook. Have an idea for a show? Or why not let us know how we're doing? Email us at matineeminutia at gmail.com. I have a voice. I have a voice. You have a voice. You have a voice. We have a voice. We have a voice. Unique voices in podcasting. Univazpods.net.